0: time of avaricious men lost in their lust for power baby here they come again they wave the flag and smile to distract us from the truth well we pay like hell for the lies they tell the thieves are on the loose don't go along with that land of the free that's the way we give away our
1: liberty well hi everybody indeed this is the time of avaricious men, and some women are in there too. But we're going to have our predictably great time tonight. Hopefully, we have really good quality audio for everything as well. Um, Sometimes when people are are in other countries, there are some problems that occur and can happen in this country. But for the most part, we have been getting fairly good audio, and hopefully the video has improved because that was pretty crappy for a while. So tonight, we've got a very interesting guest, and before I get to our guest, I saw something posted on my blog in the comment section that really resonated with me. First, I'll just read it, and I won't have to explain too much, I don't think, especially to people who are familiar with this material and with the ongoing effort of people who are involved in the mission in trying to in a responsible way, communicate it, live the principles, experiment, study the teaching, and then running into the strange dissonance, that might be the way to put it, the strange dissonance in the world when things that are simply truthful and can be easily self-determined to be the truth are presented in the midst of the garbage. So here's what I was reading today. Since the 1940s, we have been living in the prophesied time of cold hearts. With its warlike political and cult religious turmoil, philosophical and ideological contradictions, as well as social and societal disharmony, the earthly present of modern times stands in stark contrast to billions of years of creation-oriented spiritual teaching. This often very strenuous balancing act between everyday life on earth and the study and knowledge of spiritual teaching and the peaceful existence of extraterrestrial visitors is a discrepancy that is particularly noticeable for the many human beings who are close to FIGU, the organization that Billy has founded. They are the ones who try to combine both worlds in their earthly lives, dealing with and connecting these very contrasting worlds. often requires a very tactful sensitivity between sensible silence and conscious public behavior. The open-minded human beings in the inner and outer circles in and around the figu are often very challenged to harmonize these two opposing worlds in their own lives, but to do so without resenting the obtuseness and unreasonableness of Earth's humanity or despairing of the earthly lack of understanding for the real truth. Now, for those of you who come across this and aren't familiar with the spiritual teaching, the creation energy teaching in this material, the Billy Meyer material, I really suggest that you look into it and you'll understand even more, perhaps not only why this is expressed by somebody who's a student of this teaching, but why you find this dissonance, this obtuseness and unreasonableness of Earth's humanity, and you may have found yourself despairing of the earthly lack of understanding for the real truth. You may have found this in your own life, and you may find it arising, and you can reflect, if you will. On this sensitivity and sensibility, so with that having been said, I do want to introduce tonight's guest and Eric Eric Rush is a friend online. We haven't met in person to person space, but we've communicated online we visited in video before and I think Eric has a very, very interesting story to tell, something to share with us that is um, unique in certain ways, because he's got a lot of components to put together that will enlighten us about his journey here. So what I want to do is I want to right now introduce Eric. Eric, are you there?
2: Yes, I am here. Yes, Thanks sir. for having me on. It's yeah. great to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to see <laughs> <I'm>
1: you here. <laughs> You're really right there. Imagine this part worked. Okay, uh, so what what I want you to do is let's do some of the basic biographical background, such as where did you grow up? What was your basic childhood experience <clears throat> in life about? Take it away.
2: Okay well um I was born in New York City right there on Manhattan Island in the in 1961 um I was a child of a uh white father black mother which made it uh kind of interesting when I was growing up in terms of forming my uh cultural perspective you know we grew up uh, just outside or uh, I have one sister um we grew up just outside of um New York City. And um, an interesting, I guess, a little factoid is that we actually lived in the same neighborhood as the widow and children of slain civil rights leader Malcolm X. So even though I didn't really learn about him and what all of that meant until I was like a teenager. Um, I was on a first name our families were on first name bases for most of my life even though I haven't seen them for years I mean I'd probably go to New York and see them and they'd go oh hi Eric Um, so that was interesting Um, my mom ran a um, an African dance and drum troupe when I was growing up and so I was You know, the arts were a big factor in my life. We were fortunate enough to have a piano in the house. I sat down at the age of six and just started picking out songs that I had heard on the radio. Um, Both of my folks were very into music. My dad was, in addition to um, getting me into science fiction, because he was a big science fiction buff, um, he was into uh, jazz mostly loved had a great love of music. My folks had seen some of the greats um, perform when they were young people. You know, people like you know Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and Coltrane and Peggy Lee and all these people I just listened to growing up. And so between that and my mom playing a little classical and uh, the Afro Cuban influence from my mom's dance troupe it was like there was always music always musicians and dancers and people around which made for a very <clears throat> um very rich experience um i you know got into music i played well, then, a lot
1: yeah before the music going further into music what i'd like to do just uh it it just crossed my mind that uh, I know what you're talking about in a in a few areas here, but tell us, tell those people who don't know a little bit about who Malcolm X was. you knowing the family, you know, the widow, oh, yeah, and, please tell us, yeah,
2: um <clears throat> well, Malcolm X had been you know in his he was a you know a black man. um, he had been in his early life a a petty criminal who got reformed. In prison, and joined the Nation of Islam, which is um, a kind of a very straight laced, but um, rather somewhat activist group. Um, you know, I'm not going going to go into what their beliefs are, but they're loosely tied to Islam with some more esoteric stuff thrown in. And he actually wound up becoming a leader. In the movement, uh, one, pretty much like the number two guy uh, next to um, uh, uh, Mr. Muhammad, who was running it at the time. Now, it, of course, it's Louis, Louis Farrakhan. But they were very um, prevalent in the, in the area, I guess, in a lot of the big cities. And they were pretty much a separatist movement. I mean, they thought that Blacks should keep to themselves and whites should keep to themselves. And they were very down on what the, you know, the inequities that existed in, um, you know, the social social structure of the United States. And he got uh, a lot of airplay. He was very articulate um, and very congenial. And so he got, you know, I mean, you could see him during the 60s on these TV talk shows uh, that where they would be discussing racial issues, which were very front and center at the time. He, after a p- pilgrimage to some of the Arabic company uh, countries, his um, mind sort of opened up, and he. Started seeing things a bit differently because he was saying, "Wow, there are there are white Muslims and brown Muslims, and and, and in addition to black Muslims, and he sort of gravitated away from uh, the nation of Islam, which was becoming in some respects a little more militant, but not overtly so, like say the Black Pan- Panthers." which came later. Um, as a lot of folks may know, uh, Alex Haley, the man who wrote Roots, which became this big blockbuster in movies, wrote the autobiography, wrote the biography of um, of Malcolm X and did a lot of work with him. Uh, as he gravitated away from uh, the nation of Islam, he ran afoul foul of some of their teachings and was in the process of sort of starting his own thing when he was gunned down in a theater in Harlem um, in front of his, an audience and his family, Mm -hmm. which was the story that I heard growing up. And to me, it was, you know, as a kid, it was like, oh, wow, that's, that's terrible seeing your dad gunned down, whatever. Later on, I learned of his significance in the
1: civil rights arena. I I wasn't all that, uh, you know, immersed, if you will, in the, uh, the movement of civil rights or anything else at the time. I was simply aware, if you look, and it, this is the only photograph in color that I had of this particular painting, but if you look in the upper right hand corner of it, there's a man's head back at an angle. Yeah. That was my rendition of Malcolm X. I painted uh-huh. I think I painted this in 64 or something like that. And below him is I painted in the archetypical uh Southern American white racist guy. Uh-huh. And then there was the guy with the, um, what do you call it? The the halo around him, the the fake piety of religion. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, and and then above him was a guy uh, with a football helmet worshiping the football gods. (laughs) And, And all this stuff was, I was painting back in the 60s. And it was just because it was probably more, in my what I like to call my subnoxious mind than it was in my conscious mind, but all this stuff was coming out. So, you know, it's enough of that for right now. But there it was. So I haven't met anybody that was that close to, you know, Malcolm X or the people in, involved. Now you grew up after, I guess, after he had been assassinated. You were in your teen years then, or no?
2: I when he was. Let's see. He was assassinated i in, in I think it was sixty three yeah I mean I would have been two at the time yeah. so so as i said i I didn't really understand who he was until I was a teenager, you know in the early early seventies um but growing up around his kids and hearing the story, you know there was a certain amount of empathy there for like, oh my gosh, to see your father shot in front of you, yikes mm-hmm. um and I actually had a, a kind of a mini crush on one of his one of the daughters when I was growing up because she was gorgeous.
1: Oh, beautiful, I'm sure. Um, or I could also say beautiful because I wanted to put this blue screen up for a little bit instead mm-hmm. of my silver one. So you, this is kind of cool because I went to New York City probably for the first time in my life in about 1957 or 58 And then I moved there in something like 66 or 67 and lived there for for several years. And I got, you know, you, you mentioned the music scene. Tell me more about your experience in the music scene and all that.
2: Well, you know, I'm, as I said, self-taught musician and I've always, I guess, sort of gravitated to the more right brain stuff um, like music and, I, um, played a lot, you know, as I came into my teenage years, uh, like most of my peers, I, I, I guess we decided, uh, that we were going to be the next generation of, uh, rock and roll stars, you know? So I was pretty much dedicated that to that, um, until I was maybe, uh, 24, 25, and uh, wound up doing I was I was playing in clubs in New York before I was even old enough to be in them <laughs> um, and did that. You know, I wound up playing, you know, several instruments. Um, I would get, you know, backstage at shows if I didn't know the band. I mean, we opened for a, a name act or two. The band I was in at the time and if we didn't know the band at a venue, <clears throat> we could bribe the guy in the back so we could get backstage and hang out with the band, you know. So um, I wound up getting, um, well, sort of hobnobbing with a lot of people who are, I, I guess, you know, legendary, I suppose, at this point. But it, it was just, you know, it was all all in good fun. And in my view, you know, on the road to stardom. but. <clears throat> And I was working a a day job in my late teens through my twenties, which is how I blundered into um, biomedical research, which is a big part of my story and definitely helped to shape my my perspective on science and scientists. Uh, But um, yeah, I, you know, I just did that probably until I was about 24 and 25 before I uh, wound up relocating to Colorado.
1: Well, what you, you were in a rock band, if, if I understand. Several you. of them, and so who were some of the the people of the time that were rock and roll stars that you were either in, you know, playing on the same bill with, or in the same club or what have you? I th- I'm kind of curious about it.
2: Oh, um, well, uh, Journey was one of them. <clears throat> um, they were kind of a fusion rock band before they hired Steve Perry to the, their front man, who's very famous. And their early albums, of course, nobody knows about because they were totally unlike what they wound up doing for FM radio. Mm-hmm. So I hung out with them quite a bit. Um, because I actually, uh, knew someone who knew someone in the band and kind of got in with them. But there were a lot of bands that we um, sort of hung out with peripherally when they came through town, because, you know, New York is New York. And if you really want to, you can you can find those people. You know, um, a lot of bands we met. You know, we opened up for uh, Pat Travers, who was kind of a big party band guy, sort of the the, the Jimmy Buffett vein, sort of a, sort of a poor man's Jimmy Buffett, if you will. Um, Kansas, we bribed the guy to get backstage there once. Um, Rick Derringer did a, um, a a cameo appearance in a video for my band in 1985, which was very exciting.
1: Was Rick Derringer the guy who, in the Hang On Snoopy rock and roll the thing? The
2: McCoys, Hang On Sloopy," he sang that. Okay. Later on, later okay. on, he wound up playing with Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter. They right. were all, they were very tight. Um, and so I, yeah, I was in Rick Derringer's house, you know, uh, hanging out with him and, and talking about, you know, uh, my future and whatnot.
1: Um Yeah. My connection to that is that the guy that wrote the song "Hang On Sloopy," I ended up. He ended up putting out a record of mine, and then he Ah. went. Yeah, and he went in the studio with a singer to record a song I wrote, and they played it back to me over the phone. I'm living in West, what was it, Sixteenth Street in Manhattan, and it was fantastic. Was arranged by Herb Bernstein, who was a really good arranger of the time. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have this song out. And then the singer, whose name is Carly Simon, left. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, got mad at the producer and the record they never came out. I've got tons of my own, you know, music business stories, the Brill building and all that stuff. But I yeah. haven't met anybody else that was doing, you know, any of that stuff at the time. And here you are, you know, maybe at a different time or close to a different time. And you would know what I'm talking about. And I, I know a little about what you're talking about. I wasn't that much into rock and roll, but I, I know the names that you're, you're throwing around. Well, yeah. let me uh, ask you this. So you got into science fiction, I think, when you were still relevant. Yes,
2: yes, a very a pretty early age. As I said, my dad was a, a big science fiction buff. He had read. We had. He had bookshelves full of those paperbacks that he had read when he was in college or wherever. All the greats: um, Heinlein, um you know, Isaac Asimov, all the stuff. So when I was around, I was a preteen, I suppose. You know, eleven maybe. I just started pulling them off the shelf and going and seeing: Is this any good? And I'm, whoa. And it just like opened my mind to possibilities. Now you have to understand this is at the same time that the space race is on, you know, they're going to the moon. I'm watching, you know, I'm watching first run Star Trek episodes when I'm, it was when I'm six years old. So, you know, the influence started early I started picking up the books when I was more like, you know, 10 or 11 and devouring the science fiction stuff, which I think, well, I don't think, I know that between that and some of the more esoteric cultural influences I had from my mother's side of the family really left me, I think, a lot more open-minded to possibilities And things that maybe the average Westerner thought were a little out there. Um, And so, yeah, that was a a really big part of of my life. And I don't know if I read anything other than, you know, stuff that was required reading in school that wasn't science fiction Mm -hmm. until I was, you know, in my Mm -hmm. mid-20s. I mean, I was very, very into it.
1: So is that kind of a launching pad in a way, let's say, for getting into spirituality as well as science and all that? Yes,
2: I I believe it was because, you know, even though like a lot of people who are spiritual seekers, if you will, you know, there are a lot of dead ends that you can go down, but it definitely... Did open me up to that world and that sort of possibility, you know, as um, one of your get and I thought it was really amazing that one of your guests, I don't know if it was the last one or the, the one just before that was talking about how he used to watch Kung Fu with David Carradine years ago and I used to watch Kung Fu with David Carradine years ago and what got me about that was the serenity of the character and I realize it's fiction it's tv but the serenity of the character and the his sense of justice and how he always protected people who were being downtrodden and yet don't mess with him because he'll take you apart um (laughs) And and I just thought that, you know, are there are there really people out there like that who are really into the is there another world, is there a spiritual world that they talk about? And is anyone is anyone speaking the truth? Um and even though I did later on get into mainstream religion, I was always open to different things even when i was in mainstream religion i was always reading other texts of other faiths and you know even though i didn't necessarily subscribe to it i always found it very interesting and i was always kind of looking
1: hmm. what what do you think was driving this i mean i, mean, I understand the connection between the um how, how can i put it the uh, the sci-fi, the spirituality, in in a way, and then kung fu comes in there because you mentioned that. Uh, maybe again, a lot of people don't know about that show because of the time that it was, you know, hot on the air. I yeah. I also I was attracted to that show too. As a matter of fact, a cousin of mine ended up writing a uh, what do you call it, uh, an episode of that. I don't know uh-huh. which one. And he was the cousin that got me into Tai Chi and, you know, all these things were connected. So what do you think? I mean, there's so much. There's so many links, there's so many pieces in, you know, in your life, the things that you have been involved with, and I know we're going to get into some more. What was the next step then? What happened next, so to speak? Well,
2: I was introduced, uh, once again, I was always curious about um, martial arts uh, because of the self-improvement aspects, as well as having been... um, a little kid in, in you know, one of the smallest kids in my class. The whole time I was growing up, and wanted to be able to defend myself. Not that I got beat up all the time, but I just thought it was, you know, that and the health aspects. Um, so I started in martial arts in in my twenties. Um, did a lot of, uh, you know, some uh, uh, Kobudo, uh, some Shotokan. Um, and settled into uh, taekwondo in my 20s and that was obviously has health benefits and discipline benefits but you know i was always just as much into it for the mental discipline and the spiritual um enlargement as i was for everything else um at as I was studying these different spiritual schools of thought, um, because I didn't really, um, I guess because I didn't really see any alternative, I did what a lot of people who are looking for spirituality do. I wound up uh, plugging into mainstream religion for 30 years.
1: Boy. Yeah. Okay. Um, would you like to would you like to share anything about that particular journey uh what what did you get you know what particular religious path were you involved in
2: well i i mean i'm you know i'm not uh, i don't subscribe to that any longer but i plugged into a mainstream denominational you know uh christianity and um there were a number of, you know, a a number of different reasons for that, uh, uh, you know, spiritual curiosity being first and foremost among those. But I think that it's really curious to me now in retrospect, and particularly in the context of the uh, Billy Meyer material, is that the entire time that I was involved in the church I was still reading and studying things of people of other faiths, Mm -hmm. Uh, Buddhist texts. I read part of the Quran. Um, And even when I started and I was still very much um, in, you know, in the church when I started reading the contact reports and the Billy Meyer material Um, and It didn't turn me off, you know, I I sort of glossed over the parts where uh, where they talk about the spiritual teaching and that there are no celestial beings smiling down on us and all of this. And I contextualized it in the, um, you know, with the rationale of, well, you know, this may be right, but um, but God is above all of that, you know, but I'm reading all of this material and really studying it pretty closely, you know, going through the contact, uh, contact reports and the, uh, you know, all of the other material, although I hadn't started buying the books yet. And I was like, this stuff all makes sense. <laughs> and some of the, and this stuff is answering a lot of my questions. It's answering questions that I had since I was a little child. Now, remember you know, this cultural um sort of awareness that I had from when I was growing up led me to sort of I and I think of th- I tend to think of things in terms of systems. And I one of the things that I had bugged me ever since I was a kid was, you know, scientists, and of course I'm working with scientists at this point and had been for years. Scientists tell us. That we all, we started in Africa and we all grew out of there and people's appearance all changed because they went to different regions and the environment made them turn into white people or what we know as Asian people. Or I never bought that. I never bought into that. I was like, I, I don't think that that would, one thing would give rise to the other. Of course, now I know better. Right. Um, And then there were a lot of things that that were sort of anomalous in terms of what science had been telling me for my entire life, yet there are questions that they can't answer, for example. And then if they don't know, they'll either shrug their shoulders or in most instances, they'll just make something up, you know, and I... Became aware working in biomedical research that some of the uh, that that some of the the people who work in there some and I've worked for some top top notch guys. I mean, I worked for some researchers who were the biggest in on their planet in the you know in their field on the planet, mm-hmm. and I'm saying these guys are all about ego. They're very capricious they will destroy their colleagues if their pet theories, if they run afoul of their pet theories. And so at this, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this. And then I make this connection, you know, also as I'm reading the contact reports, some of the most dastardly people in the history of the, you know, Pleiaren Pleiadians were scientists. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at these guys that we have talking to us on the TV and, and, you know, on, in the media. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, they could become as power crazed and as dastardly as some of the people that
1: um, I'm reading about. Well, speaking of, you know, power crazed scientists and TV and all that, let us know a little bit about how you became a commentator for a major network.
2: Well, that's another interesting story. You know, I mean, as I said, I've always been right-brained. I I was always into writing, music, you know, all of these professions that if you don't do well, you know, if you don't become a, a you know, a wild success, you wind up living in a Maytag box. Um but I always liked to write. I, you know, I'd be writing short stories while I was supposed to be studying in class and things of this nature. And I think because I've always had a sense of systems and empathy and justice and all that, you know, I was looking at the world and where it was going, you know, it, I, it was really strange that a lot of the, through a lot of these years that I'm playing rock and roll music and hanging out with people, a lot of them are stoners and, and druggies and whatnot. You know, I have this core of friends, we'd sit over in a corner, and they didn't do that stuff. They talked politics, they talked what was going on in the world, they talked about social issues. And I guess, because I cared about what was going on i sort of gravitated into um writing <clears throat> political commentary and while i you know i i did tend to gravitate more to the right although that <clears throat> that made for some uh, cognitive dissonance but i was writing for some local uh papers and things of that nature and some um, online uh, web stuff um, in the early 2000s. And actually, there was a little bit of overlap with that in my last uh, research job. But they had this um, fellow who was uh, coming out um, and, and was going to run for president, a fellow named Barack Obama. And uh, I did a little bit of research on him just because I that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And I came across this, um, I came across the website of the church that he went to at the time, Trinity United church in Chicago. And I looked at their website and it was uh, basically a lot of black nationalist stuff in my view. And, you know, I had been raised with the, you know, people are people, you know, I've got a white father, black mother, people are people, some people are idiots, some people are not. And the militancy that came out of the black consciousness movement was something that I didn't go for because it was violent, you know, you know, just as I didn't go for the the Klan, because they were violent, you know, or the, the white nationalists. And so I wrote an article about Trinity United Church of in in Chicago obama's church and i figured people will find it interesting because he goes there the next thing i and it got published the next thing i know i get a call from the producer of what was then hannity and combs on fox news and they're like uh we're going to send a car for you take you down to denver so you can talk to hannity and combs I'm like okay hmm. so the rest as they say is is history because they um uh, the reverend jeremiah wright who was the pastor there, that became one of the kind of sticking points to Obama getting nominated because everyone was asking him, you know, what about this militant pastor you got? And they sort of glossed over it. And he was, you know, a media darling by then, and he was going to be our first black president. And so that sort of died down. But what happened on my end was that I kept getting radio interviews, TV appearances, et cetera, et cetera. I never wound up getting a high paying, you know, network gig out of it, but did get gained some note notoriety and did get a steady, you know, writing gig online for quite a few years.
1: Well, this is, you know, rare. I mean, we don't have these stories with most of our friends. We don't know anything about this. And, uh, Uh, You know, this whole thing with the media, you you may know, I try to get the the Meyer material into the mainstream media. Yeah. Recently, I was actually contacted by three different pretty good sized PR firms. And, uh, you know, they wanted me to call and discuss doing PR with them. And uh, I did. And each time I spoke to to the person who was going to vet this, they were genuinely I got excited about getting this out. Wow, that's fascinating information. And wh- one of them I knew they were legit in their enthusiasm. They offered me a two-for-one, you know, we'll give you a free article too. And I go, okay, well, let's see what happens. So naturally, they, two of them proceeded to try to get a PR out. And they could not get into the publications because in case people don't know, and that's why I'm taking time to tell this, yeah. The media, and especially any mainstream media, publication, TV, anything else, has people in it who are there to monitor that certain things do not get into the news. Yes. Right? You know this. Yes. So uh, the third <clears throat> the third guy that contacted me just last week, after I told him all this information, he was trying to figure out, well, how did we ever get in touch with you? He said, "I know, I can tell you right now. We're not going to be able to get this in the media. And I said, yeah, well, th- you're one yep. of the few people to recognize that right off the bat. But at least I got to do my story to you as a journalist, you know, and said, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. And I said, yeah, well, you might want to study this because it's going to affect you and your family and the, the rest of the country and the world. Whether the powers that be wanted to come out, they think they can, like Billy says, there's not enough shovels to bury the truth. And I keep on trying. But yes, I, but, and what I also know, and I just take I'm gonna give you just want to get this out. This so-called UFO community, these people in Congress, they're now complaining that they can't get the info that they're demanding from the government. And I'm sitting here going, um, I've sent you the best info you will ever see. You don't have to rely on the government for its disinformation. I've been in touch with one office for a Republican representative who uh, the person said, "Oh, send us." That sounds fascinating. You know the usual. Of course, yeah. no mention after that. So, um, your story it, it rings true. It at least brings up for me. Yes, my you own know, kind of the experience.
2: And, and well, you see. One of the things that wound up souring me on politics was exposure to insiders there. I mean, as a result of the writing that I'm doing, I'm traveling, um, I'm going on on these shows, I'm meeting people in Congress, I'm meeting retired... Um, generals and admirals and un ambassadors and former you know intelligence operatives and the things that i'm learning is that they're all the same you know they're, they're this this whole left right paradigm it's theater it's theater with their people and people don't understand that when they go for go to vote for someone they're not really voting for someone they're voting for an approved candidate you know in in terms of that media thing you're describing you know you may get somebody who's um a little low down on the food chain or an assistant producer Mm -hmm. or whatever run across the Billy Meyer material or something else that's controversial and go, whoa, this is interesting. And they'll send it to their producer and their producer may say, yeah, this is interesting. Let's run with this. Sooner or later, it comes across someone's desk. desk, And you know, as you and I know, there are intelligence operatives embedded in these yeah. networks as well. Um, and I'm sure that you and I came by that information in two different you know separately but sooner or later it gets to uh you know someone high and up enough who says you know we can't have this out there and as you know to borrow a phrase from that we see so many times in the contractor part reports since time immemorial Mm -hmm. these people have been squashing this stuff and that's what they're doing right now, or at least attempting to, you know, in in an age we're in, living in now, they're not going to be able to do it as successfully or as completely as they used to. But, you know, they're going to try
1: mm-hmm. and they'll they'll have a great oppressive tools even greater at their disposal. They already do. So with these experiences you've had something, what happened 20 plus years ago? that created certain difficulties in your life. What did you get into
0: that you had to get out of?
2: Well, as I, you know, I never made any secret of this, even when I was um, writing political commentary, because I think that it tends to help humanize um the the person who's writing or commenting if people don't think they you know live a charmed life you know i never made a secret of the fact that i grew up with alcoholism in the home my dad though he was a brilliant man and i loved him dearly was a raging alcoholic and probably a malignant narcissist as well but um you know in my when i hit my early 40s Um, which well, 20 years ago, um, I came to the conclusion that I was in danger of going down the same path, Mm -hmm. so I got into recovery and I got sober. And interestingly enough, that is what led me to the Billy Meyer material. Really, there are in addition to the various types of media and material and books that people uh, read or, you know, when they're looking at recovery or in recovery, there are certain films and books and media that are sort of, uh, of cult interest, I guess you might say, that are just popular sort of within those circles. And I came across this book um, by this fellow whose name I cannot pronounce. And it's called, we are all connected or we are all related. Mm and it is a it's by a native american gentleman <clears throat> who encountered a lot of the things that native americans do when they come up in modern america military service alcoholism that sort of stuff and he then gone on a spiritual path sort of got back to his native american roots mm-hmm. now toward the end of this book and it's almost like an afterthought, the way it reads because it's very conversational. He starts talking about yeah, there's this guy in Switzerland, and I don't even know. I'd have to go through it again. I don't even know if he names a Billy Meyer by name, but he talks about uh the Pleiadians, and he says yeah, they've been coming here for millennia, and they've been visiting this man for at the time of publication, I guess it was about forty. 50 years um, and visiting with him and they are here to help us not destroy ourselves essentially and grow spiritually. And yeah, at the time it took him about seven hours to get here from the Pleiades. Uh, and and I read that and I was like, Whoa, this looks interesting. And that was about 15 years ago that I picked up that book and I immediately got online and started Finding bits of the contact reports and information on Billy Meyer, and the rest is is history. I, you know, I, had, I I read, I devoured. You know, I mean, I love reading. Fortunately, mm-hmm. I devoured the contact reports, and even though some of it sort of ran, you know, wasn't in sync with you know my religious beliefs at the time, more and more of it started to make sense. And then with the validation, you know, the hard scientific evidence, these photos are real, these videos are real, you know, other people have seen these things, and experienced these things, and I I just had to, you know, say as I was, you know, going through all of this, that if this makes sense, There's a high probability that that makes sense, (laughs) which started to throw a little bit of question into, you know, my my religious beliefs. But something else was happening at the same time as well. Now, even though I was no longer doing, you know, drinking and drugging and all of that nonsense, I was still having a lot of problems with what I understand now as psychic damage but things like depression and high levels of anxiety and so on and so forth which came to a head about five or six years ago and i started to i came to the realization i needed to seek some help for that and i wound up learning that I had, you know, this unresolved childhood trauma from being raised with this raging alcoholic, which is unfortunately has become almost passe in our society. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there being a continuum of damage, it isn't everyone who winds, you know, who grows up with an alcoholic who winds up, you know, having a complete um psychic breakdown but as I learned more about unresolved trauma and things of that nature at least as far as what we understand here on earth in you know 21st century medicine um, and psychiatry and all of that I in addition to uh, learning how you know feeble our understanding of the human mind is I started noticing that this sort of psychic damage is pretty prevalent in our society. Um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, recovery groups and things of this nature, which have had unprecedented success in helping people who are addicted to whatever it is, whether it's alcohol, drugs, food, you know, um, but central to a lot of that is um, mainstream spirituality, which on Earth means God belief. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, what do you what do you tell someone who's you know one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel with their addiction? <laughs> you know, don't go there. Well, they might fix you, but you know, you might wind up you know um, a religious zealot as well so i've sort of had to fine-tune that in terms of my own recovery but what it, it came down to was my re- realization that um we're a really sick society we don't treat each other very well which of course dovetails very nicely into the spiritual teaching you know our our thinking is fear-driven, ego-based, uh, because of the way that we think, um, and of course, this is you know elaborated on in great detail in, in the creation energy teaching. Um, and, and I, I you know came to realize that you know if people truly knew, I, I mean, people don't understand our true nature i mean the majority of people on earth don't understand our true true nature and if they did they would think and act differently which is of course what the mission is all about
1: yes yes amazing you know um you've you've taken this trip and you've you've done like a full cycle to arrive somewhere now that is its own life in a way i mean the teaching and finding the balance that it brings forward you seem to be to me you know involved with that and expressing that i really appreciate that you've taken the time to go into this you know for us do do you have any other thoughts that you want you want to share before we close
2: well oh, only one really is and and the reason that i i did want to bring that out there is because, well, for one thing, I, I don't want to, um, you know, soft soap the fact that it's been difficult. You know, when when you have this sort of thing, these sorts of things in your life, um, it's difficult to come to come back from, and a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of people either fall back to into their addiction or they check out, commit suicide, what have you things of that nature. And I know that, you know, in the psyche, the book, the psyche and Billy talks about that at great length. Some people just fall through the cracks, unfortunately, because they don't know a better way. And, you know, for anyone who has had, you know, who, for whom life has thrown them maybe a few more curves than their neighbor, you know, there is, there is healing in the creation energy teaching. I mean, I was reading through the, the book, The Psyche for the second time uh, a, a couple weeks ago. And I came to the conclusion that even if that book only contained the last two chapters, it would be worth buying, at least for me, it would be worth having because the, the understanding that you get of about us and about healing and about the mind and all of that, to me has been indispensable. Meditation to me is indispensable. It's not optional. Um, and for anyone you know i'm and, and I'm sure I'm not going to be unique, you know among people who come to the creation energy teaching who have had some sort of trauma in their life, whether or not they freely discuss it or not. That don't let that be an impediment to your healing, to your learning um, and jump in with both feet or one toe at a time like I did and uh, <clears throat> there's just so much to learn. It has made a uh, just an incredible difference in my life um, over the last five years and the years before that studying in terms of the knowledge I've gleaned.
1: Well, I thank you very, very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I don't like to say interview so much. Uh, it's it's a conversation. That I think uh, there are a lot of people who can and will relate to various aspects, as well as the you know the, the whole overall context of your life. But to certain things that there are these bullet points or you know, if we had a gong and hit him every now and then we'd get this image that's floating around behind us here. Yeah. I can relate to a lot, you know, to a lot of these things too, not just the ones that I said, well, I had a connection to that, but, you know, the uh, the trials and tribulations, I was homeless in New York City and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff and a little bit in San Francisco, and L.A. as well. So when you find the path and you you don't, as you say, you don't let these circumstances or situations be an impediment, be an actually an obstacle that yeah. you cannot surmount. You surmount it, and yeah. I want to thank you very much for telling us your story. You know, sharing it, and uh, wow! So I'll be seeing you during the monthly meetings, and other people who might be interested in seeing you in the monthly meetings and learning sure. about the sharing. Okay. Of- yeah. Thank you very much.
2: This has been, this has been fun.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Truly my pleasure. And I think it will be the pleasure of many people uh, who relate strongly to your life and your story, your journey. So Eric Rush, thank you very much for participating for being here with us on the UFO report. We didn't talk much about UFOs <laughs> every now and then we do. So thank you very much. And I'll see. Say- Goodbye for now. Until next time, I'll just for everybody, may we be safe and serene. And I'll say Salome until next time.
0: They Salome, take care. How things have gotten bad. Drugs and crime are all the time. So they hide behind the flag. They'll trash the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. There's nowhere to hide they decide. Long back, the land of the free That's the way we give away our liberty First will be the flag, then what you can eat and drink Next will be your attitude, what you say you feeling fake Then before you know it, you're a number without a name We're under attack, we better push back so we don't end